This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 602, a conversation with Kelly Thompson. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 602. It's our conversation with Kelly Thompson. I'm really excited to uh, introduce this episode. I had a great time talking with Kelly about her current writing projects and some of the exciting new things coming up um, soon, as well as talking of, you know, kind of how she got into the industry, her background with comics. It was a, a very enjoyable conversation. I'd love to have Kelly Thompson back on the show at some point in the future. Uh, we did have this conversation before Uncanny X-Men um, was uh, announced, and she was announced to be kind of working on it. Um, so that is one thing that's kind of missing from the conversation. In case you're like, whoa, I'm going to be able to hear about Uncanny X-Men and what it's like to work on that new weekly book, uh, you're not going to find that, unfortunately, in this conversation as it does. Uh, the conversation predates that announcement. But otherwise, it was a very enjoyable conversation. I had a great time talking with Kelly uh, about her comic uh, writing career, and uh, there's a lot of really good stuff in here. I think you'll really enjoy it. You can email me at the at the sh- podcast at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. Like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for joining us. This is episode 602 with Kelly Thompson. Enjoy. Kelly, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. I'm very excited to have you on the show. Um, I've loved a lot of your recent work. I really want to delve into it. Before I do, I do want to kind of go back in time and when do comics first become part of your life? Um, technically, uh, from a very early age, um, I was reading Archie's. Okay. Um, so probably like six or seven I was reading those you know but I I do have to say with no disrespect to Archie I do sort of have a a separate demarcation in my mind when I think about um, learning about and learning to love comics um, which is when I was a teenager that was sort of this discovery of not just superhero comics which you know is a very specific thing to happen but um, more importantly, I think the comics culture and the understanding that there was a shop that you go to mm-hmm. and, and that there was a schedule that books came out, they came out weekly, they were these floppies, this was a whole thing. Like It was completely different than the Archies that I had sort of begged my mom for that I would just see at the grocery checkout. And, and I don't want to diminish how powerful those were in their way. I mean, they were, they were, they were powerful in a way I didn't even really understand. For example, I went to a friend's house one time and she was sort of rich and I went to go to the bathroom when I was there and they had this huge basket of Archie digests that I'd never like all full of that I'd never seen before. And so the whole rest of the day, I didn't want to play. I just wanted to read her Archie digests and I never got invited back and I didn't deserve to get invited back. But I mean, I just think that's telling about how I responded to comics very early. Uh, but it just took a while for me to realize that there was this whole world, you know, and, um, and that like many people of a certain age happened for me, through discovering the X-Men animated series. And then not long after that, my brothers came home with comic books in their hand, jumping up and down, going, it's the girl from the cartoon, it's the girl from the cartoon. And then, like, that was it. I was done. <laughs> I was in. 
I was obsessed. It was my whole world, and uh, you know, much to my parents' chagrin. <laughs> now, when you told the story there about uh, the, the rich girl's house and going to her washroom, I thought that was going to take another turn. That you realized that this girl was Veronica. <laughs> Uh, she was very Veronica. I believe her name was Jess, Jessica. Um, but she was a very rich brunette sort of genteel, at least compared to me. I mean, I lived in a pretty small town and I, I was, I was middle class or upper middle class, depending on who you asked. I, I certainly was wanting for nothing, but, uh, those Archies in a big basket in the bathroom was like a whole other level of rich that I didn't really know about. So it was, uh, it was funny. She had, I mean, she was like the girl who had horses, you know, it was like a whole, <laughs> whole other level. But <laughs> I didn't quite live with that type of uh, people, but I did have people, um, I grew up in kind of a rich neighborhood. I was definitely not, I didn't really belong there. I was middle class as well, but I grew up in kind of a wealthy area of Toronto. And um, there, I remember having kids in my class who, they would lose a tooth and they got a video game. I'm like, what is happening? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Like, I'm getting, like, a dollar, and I'm like, this is great. And then there's some other kids getting a video game. I'm like, that's not even on the same level. <laughs> They're like, yeah, the Tooth Fairy just puts a check under my uh, <laughs> under my pillow. $1,000 check. That's what it felt like. Because you know, when, you're, cause when, yeah. you're a, when you're a kid, like, something that's, like, that much seems like a million dollars. Yeah, no, that's a huge discrepancy. That's a huge markup. So that's interesting. When I when I read uh, books to my son and I'm like I was reading them Berenstein Bears go to the dentist and in it they talk about the tooth fairy and you, you might get like a I think it was like a coin it was like a ten cent coin I'm like you know what I'm okay with my son believing that's what he's going to get because then he, he won't be disappointed <laughs> right if it was something crazy I'd be like well this is bad but that, that's that's suitable. <laughs> So when when you uh, to go before we actually get into the kind of the, I guess the more kind of mainstream comics with that demarcation when you first start reading Archie's um, I mean obviously it teaches you how to read comics because I'm always surprised by adults who are like I don't understand where to read or where it's, my eyes are supposed to go. It's really enlightening, isn't it? I ran before I wrote comics, wrote fiction for a living. I you know I ran a couple. Um, I, it's sort of like an op-ed. It was called She Has No Head for CBR. And um, one of the many things I did on there was I ran a comics experiment. The first one was for women because the it was a female-focused uh, article any or a column anyway. And so it was just trying to get women to read comics and seeing what they thought about them and things like that. But then I also ran some that were just for people who don't read comics. And I was really – it was really enlightening about – how if you don't read them and develop that skill uh, early on, it's a real stumbling block. It doesn't mean people can't get over it, and I think there are people who are particularly inclined to, and respond to it, you know, sort of the way I did as a teen where you were just like, oh, my God, I love this, and you're like, whereas someone else reads it and is like, eh, whatever, it's fine. You know, so I, I, there's always going to be those differences between people, but it's shocking how how much of a stumbling block it can be if you didn't read them as a kid because it becomes really natural if you had just have that built-in skill um one of the things i bumped into i don't know if you've run into this but uh adults who don't have uh, a, a a young experience with comics have real trouble with the ads hmm Interesting. I mean, they just, like, I think every single person I interviewed that I sent comics to and interviewed 
mentioned the ads if they hadn't read comics before. Uh, they're like, well, why is there an ad here? I'm like, well, you know, why do we have commercials? Like, that's why. <laughs> like, what, yeah, what do you yeah. mean? What's the problem? And they were like, it's so confusing. I just start reading it. And I'm like, how can you not, how can you not tell? And it's like, I'll give them the occasionally ads try to make themselves look like comics to fool you. But most of the time they're not like that. And I'm like, come on, you gotta have a higher, True. You gotta have a higher comics IQ than that, guys. Just turn the page. I ignore it. You should too. <laughs> I think the only one I can understand someone getting tripped up by, I think, it was what in the mid to early two thousands when in Marvel Comics they had an anti drug um, comic in the middle with Spider Man and Mysterio. Yeah. And that one I could I can kind of depending on what comic you're reading I can kind of say okay there was no really clear demarcation. Yeah. And then yeah. maybe there if you were just flipping through, you would make that mistake. But yeah, yeah, by and large, I'm surprised that that would be a stumbling block. But I can, I guess I can get it, but it also does seem strange. Like, how would you not notice? Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things that you sort of take for granted that you just sort of assume, you know? Well, I'm trying to get my son into learning about, you know, again, how to follow panels and that kind of stuff so that it's not a difficulty. And I, I only realize it once I'm older that, yeah, people who don't have that kind of ingrained sense are really kind of thrown by how to read comics. Where are my eyes supposed to go? How is this working? Whereas, yeah, mm-hmm. we just kind of take it for granted because we learned it when we were like kids. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it feels pretty intuitive, um, but I don't know. It's, people really do struggle with it. I. Um, you know, it, it, comics is very special in that it's not a medium that everyone ingests the way everyone sort of ingests music and everyone mm. sort of knows about books and everyone sees TV and everyone sees movies. Like these are just such common cultural touchstones. It, it's it's extremely rare if you're not familiar with those things, right? Uh, so you don't need this sort of education on the but comics is a very specific medium and uh, it does it does take a sort of special skill set and a special interest level which I think is sort of beautiful but you know I also want everyone to read comics so I, <laughs> I, I'd, I'd rather everyone would read comics than it be special but whatever <laughs> so when you first kind of become immersed in comics I was I'm most curious what is there a point or when is that point for you when you go from being fans of characters or uh, concepts and start following creators or starting to notice creators and be more about the creators you're following as opposed to just the characters I think and again this is me being sort of a slow learner I feel like I come to everything a little bit slow um but I think it wasn't for me. So I, by the time I was a teen, uh, young teen, I guess, 14, 15, whatever it was, when I started getting into comics, maybe it was 16, I, I got a car not too long, or access to a car not too long after I discovered comics, which made hunting them down a lot easier. Um, but I think that it wasn't until after I went to school Um, I, when I went to the Savannah College of Art and Design to study comics, I sort of stopped reading them, which was a weird thing. I mean, I was still reading them for classes and things. And I was, I was definitely exploring a lot more independent stuff, but I basically stopped having a pull at a comic book shop when it was the first time since I discovered comics that I didn't really have that. And it was for a variety of interesting and uninteresting reasons. But I think it was after I finished school when I started reading comics again when I was living in L.A. that I was like, I'm interested in the creators. Like, that's the, 
that's the common denominator for me. Like, you know, yes, I always am interested in Batman, but I don't always like Batman. And I seem to see that the connection is who's doing it, you know, and what it looks like and uh, what they're trying to say. And, and, and so maybe I need to be following that guy instead of just Batman, you know? Mm -hmm. It's interesting. It's an interesting maturation of your, of anyone's love of comics when, yeah, it becomes less, it's kind of like as a kid, you're going to watch TV shows, not really connecting to who those, you know, the actors might be. And when you're older, you're like, I want to see everything that this person's in because they're good. And they're part of why I like that show. And it's just interesting when, because it's very different in comics because it's not as obvious. I mean, maybe with the art it is, but not necessarily with the story, because unless you're really reading what the words are, like who the names are, I mean, with some people, you'll, you can get a sense of who it is, but for a lot, it's it's a little harder, and then you start to understand yeah. the patterns. Yeah, it's very funny to me to as a as a professional comics writer to think back of how little attention I paid to that kind of thing when I was a teen, <laughs> and like, wow, I really just didn't care who wrote that. Like, I. I, I didn't I wasn't really absorbing that even though from from the very beginning it was something I wanted to do and I mean I guess I I looked at it I, I mean I definitely was aware like who was writing my X-Men comics but I don't know I didn't really except for the image stuff which you know I sort of understood I mean if that had happened in a more internet age I think it would have been a very different experience for me because I could have gone online and read about why that was happening and what it was about but as like a comics neophyte with all that image stuff happening like oh Jim Lee is my my favorite X-Men artist but he's gone over here to do his own thing and why is he doing that and like all of that was so sort of fascinating to me but also mysterious like I didn't really understand it yet so um I don't know. It's it's interesting to look back on. I mean, the funny thing to me is that I want to say that having that discovery mostly comes from a positive thing. Like you read a great Greg Rucka Wonder Woman story and you go, wow, Greg Rucka's the best. I'm going to go read all of Greg Rucka's stuff. And that happens. That happens all the time. Mm-hmm. But I also think uh, too many of us know a lot of what wakes you up to creator versus character is reading some really bad shit with your favorite character yep. and being like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and I mean, cause that's just such a splash of cold water all of a sudden of wait, that, that, that character, I, I don't, I don't recognize what's happening. Like, why don't I like this? What's going on? And like, that can really help wake you up to, um, the difference, right? And that the character may remain constant, but the quality doesn't necessarily remain constant. So uh, it's interesting. That's a really interesting comment because, as you said it, I was thinking like, when, are, when were the first times I remember, you know, not liking a creator and having like uh, as a kind of a signpost? And it might have been before I was really noticing which creators I liked. <laughs> so yeah, you might be yeah. onto something there. Like, yeah, because you're you're more likely to go, well, what what is happening? Yeah. Yeah, I mean that was definitely for me, um, and 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 you know you can go through those runs where you suddenly are like I don't read this comic anymore. Like this used to be my favorite comic book in the world, and I just don't read it anymore because I don't know what the fuck's going on over here. You know, I found that, um, was, that was always so that was really hard for me when I first was able to say like I can't buy this anymore because as a kid you're kind of like I gotta buy them all. I gotta yeah, continue the story, yeah. and at some point you're like, I have to cut this off. Like this is, it's like a, it's like yeah. a, a relationship that went sour, and you're just kind yeah. of holding on to it anyway. 
Yeah, I think comics is a real tricky beast in that way because there's so much about us as comic fans that overlaps with being collectors. Mm -hmm. And so they really, you know, the industry really takes advantage of us in a way uh, because it knows our ticks, right? It knows we want the variants and that it's hard for us to cut off the subscription because we've invested into this completionist thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how much they're trying to do that and how much that's just the reality. And we just have to, you know, figure our way around it. Right. <laughs> and like make our own decisions. I do see people, on Twitter and, and Facebook and forums and stuff saying stuff where they just hate a book and they just shit on it relentlessly. And I just, in my mind, I'm like, why are you reading this? Like, stop. <laughs> You've hated it for a year. Just save yourself the pain. And, you know, I, I think there's some element there where some people just really love to, you know, criticize something or hate something or, or to, to indulge in sort of that, uh, that hatred of something and they get something out of that, especially if there's some sort of commentary and, and community where they can then take those feelings they have about it. But I think there's plenty of people who are really upset about hating it and don't want to feel that way, but they have trouble severing that tie. Like we get very attached to that stuff. No, I know sure. I do. No, absolutely. I, there's I, when I, uh, I think after, just after I got married, there's a few comics where my wife's like, I don't think you're enjoying this anymore. So why are you buying it? And I'm like, I want it to be better. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like yeah. I, I followed these characters for so long. Like, I'm hoping it will get better. And when there's a creative team change, I keep hoping it'll get better. And she's like, has it though? And I'm like, not really. <laughs> it's like, well, then maybe it's time <laughs> yeah. to stop. And she was absolutely right. But it, cause she comes at it from it at a, a non comic reader perspective. It's a lot easier, but it's, it's, it's kind of like if someone watched a soap opera for like 20 years, do you just stop or do you just go through the periods when the writers aren't as good? And then eventually they'll go back to the stories you like. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I've been there too. I've been there too. So when you come back to kind of, you know, you're, you're done school and now you're kind of getting back into comics, who is it that you're reading that are really grabbing you now that you're starting to make the shift over to following creators and starting to notice people? Well, uh, and it pertains particularly to this conversation, um, one of my first big re-entries was Alias. Hmm. Um, Alias, uh, I feel like it's around the same time. I can't be sure without looking it up. The, the Cascade Batgirl uh, was really big for me getting back in. Um, I, I toe dipped back into X-Men because that's always sort of my first and last love, but I don't recall in that time period being really wowed with anything I found. So I would keep sort of dipping back in and seeing if there was something I liked, but I was more, I mean, the alias sort of blew my mind. Like that was this really adult take had detectives, which is sort of my favorite thing. It had, you know, superhero stuff, which is my other favorite thing. <laughs> you know, it was really dark and smart. And so Alias blew me away. And so what did I do? I went back and I found everything Brian Michael Bendis had done, Jinx and Goldfish and like all his early stuff. And then I started to follow him other places too, you know. Um, How do you just come across Alias, if you don't mind me asking? Because that's like that at the time, like I would imagine that weren't Max books kind of kept a little bit separate from like the regular books at the time? and. Um, I remember 
just finding it on the shelf. I don't know if that depends on where you were living. I mean, I was living in Los Angeles, which is probably a more <laughs> liberal place. Maybe it's a little less restrictive there um, than, than, I don't know, Ohio or something. I don't know. Um, certainly more than Utah, perhaps, which is where I lived as a, as a high schooler. Um, so... It was, as I recall, it was just on the shelf, and I picked it up, um, and then that was it. I was like, "Well, this is fucking great." Um, <laughs> so. What do you think would have happened if you hadn't picked that up off the shelf? Because it's interesting. Because if that's a kind of a focal point, that's emblematic of like what kind of gets you back in, and obviously kind of changes a lot of things and about what you like and and where that eventually directs you. So if you don't pick up Alias off the shelf, what happens to you? Where do you go? Well, I think that at the same time that I was falling in love with Alias, you know, one of the things that 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 going to SCAD had had sort of opened my eyes to, because I had been pretty strictly a superhero comics reader with a few deviations like The Crow, because the movie was out and I fucking fell in love with it, and so I read the comic, <laughs> and I didn't love the comic, but I wanted to love it like there were things I really loved about it even though I didn't wholeheartedly love it like but you know I had been pretty pretty tame superhero only type stuff or even if it deviated outside it it was just a little bit you know just around the edges um but when I went to SCAD that certainly opened uh the door to a ton more stuff I mean I think everything from I mean, you know, all, all the, the classic stuff, the 70s stuff. I mean, I had a comics history class, right? Um, so it opened the door to so much. Um, I think Black Hole was something I found pretty early on when I was at SCAD and just sort of fell in love with and was like, I can't even believe this exists. Like Terry Moore with Strangers in Paradise stuff. Like, you know, so I just really sort of explored all, all that stuff. And that was, I'm sure, part of the reason I leaned away from superhero comics. Like I said, it was for a few reasons, including, ironically, in Savannah, where they have a major for sequential art. I didn't like any of the comic shops I went to, (laughs) uh, which is a crying shame. Uh, I don't know what their situation is now, but I found them very unfriendly and not cool. Um, And that's a big roadblock we talk about a lot for people. Um, and it was very foreign to me because I had had a great shop in Salt Lake, a sort of famous shop, um, Night Flight Comics. And I had been to other good shops too, but that was sort of our, our standard. That's where we had our pulled or whatever our pull. And, uh, and then when I went to U of A, before I transferred to SCAD, I had this amazing shop called Captain Spiffy's which I actually <laughs> took classes there. Um, oh, wow. And he, like, and he, like, made a zine where, because he was, like, an artist and a writer. Um, so I had had these really incredible shop experiences, and it's this thing where, again, you, the Internet isn't really a thing at this point. I don't even know this is a problem people have. And then I went to SCAD, and it was a bunch of shitty shops with douchebags and digital comics weren't really a thing. And I was like, okay, well, I mean, I guess I don't have to buy superhero comics. Like I'm, I'm reading all these graphic novels and shit for school. I'll just do that. And I loved that stuff. And it really expanded my mind in interesting ways. Um, so then, so then 
at or around the time when I'm now in LA and I find Alias was I was also finding stuff like first of all Meltdown which just closed was one of my favorite shops and a huge game changer for me was Jeffrey Brown comics like I picked up Clumsy one day and I was a goner for how great that was so <laughs> even so even if I hadn't picked up Alias like I was still doing the indie thing and I had my foot firmly planted in that and Alias sort of slowly drug me back into mainstream floppies again but I think the truth is even though Alias proved to be an incredible gateway drug to getting me back into the weekly habit I always would have come back because I left again later and when I was first living in New York I didn't have a pull anymore and I wasn't really doing that and The Walking Dead brought me back in. My boyfriend was reading The Walking Dead, and I was like, holy crap, this is incredible. I got (laughs) to read this. It was very early on in The Walking Dead. I loved it. And so, you know, it really is a gate. One floppy comic is a real gateway drug. And then I think I springboarded, I think, uh, just wait. uh, My dates, this is all memory, so I could be wrong here, but my memory is at the same time that I was reading that, Joss Whedon and John Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men was coming out and that blew my mind and then I was immediately back into superhero comics like (laughs) done deal so then I'm scouring everything to find out what I've missed and what's great and what I should be reading and you know you know how it goes I do (laughs) I'm curious about one thing actually I'm going to go back way back for a second so you mentioned that you know when in in the 90s you're getting into this stuff and then your brothers bring home you know X-Men comics or whatever Um, did they ever stay in kind of reading comics did they kind of fall out and you kind of stayed in or I'm always curious Uh, what siblings who get comics from siblings what happens to the sibling who originally kind of introduced it right so so my brothers are Scott and Dave and or it was David then it's Dave now um, <laughs> and so they're both younger um, Scott by two to three years Dave by three to four years I think it is or four years I don't know something like that and Scott stayed in with me and that was not really a surprise Scott and I are a lot more similar as far as sort of the cerebral nerdy kind of thing Dave is a bit cooler than either of us. Um, And we were more interested in the cartoon. Like David liked it, but it didn't, it didn't like give him goosebumps the way it gave Scott and I goosebumps. Like there's just a very, I always call it the superhero chills. If a movie does it right. Like if they get that moment that like just gets you so excited, right? Like Mm -hmm. um, here's a great example of, and, and that can be surprisingly hard to come by. Um, a great example to me of it is in Iron Man 3. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in that movie. I like that movie more than most people. Um, I think it's super cool. Um, but <laughs> that when he's saving the people from the plane, yeah. that is quintessential superhero. Right? I'm literally saving human beings from a tragedy and I'm looking like a badass and we're cutting it to music or whatever we're doing. <laughs> and it's that it's that comic books made real that gives you the chills, right? And I remember Scott and I went to uh, X-Men together um, and we were just like furiously like 
banging our elbows on each other in the in the Magneto scene when he's that first scene when he's tearing up that metal. <laughs> we were just so excited to see this thing we loved made real, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that from that very first Rogue punching that Sentinel in a mall when we were flipping channels he and I were just hooked in a way that Dave wasn't. And that's that thing we were talking about before where some people are just inclined to it and some aren't. And it isn't that David hates comics. Like I gave him saga and he called me up like, I don't know, a month after I gave it to him and he's like, is there more of this? He's like, I really liked it. And I was like, so, you know, there's always, there's always ways to get those people in, mm-hmm. but no, he didn't respond to it the way we did. Uh, he had. I, I, I remember the comics, if they're interesting to you. Uh, Scott had um, Uncanny X-Men 290 with Storm on the cover, oh, crying yeah. in the rain. He's so excited. It's the girl from the show. It's the girl from the show. Bouncing <laughs> down. This is the cutest freaking thing. And then uh, Dave had... <laughs> Dave had X Force number three. Okay. Uh, so those are my those are my first two floppy comics. Uh, I I think it suffice to say since I work in comics, I own both of those now. I stole them from them many years ago. Um, they, uh, but yeah, Scott stayed in, and Scott is still in to a degree. I mean, he has two kids now, and you know he's a very busy guy. He has a lot of other hobbies in addition to comics, so he's not. He's not in as much as he'd probably like to be, but uh, he still reads comics, yeah. And and me writing comics has gotten him in there, back in there a little bit more, I think. Now, uh, th- does he think that's pretty... I mean, I guess you must think it's pretty cool that you're actually writing some of these characters that you used to watch on TV? Yeah, he's, he's, he's awesome about it. He's super supportive. You know, I sometimes worry a little bit. He's very creative and very talented himself, so I sometimes feel a little bad that... Um, you know, maybe he wants that too. Like, is there some, you know, some wish fulfillment there? But he's never been anything but kind and and uh, supportive about it. So let's move a little bit forward then. So you mentioned before when you used to write for CBR. How did that kind of come about? Or how, when did you start working with CBR? Um, I think it was, I started writing, I was, I was writing a novel um, in like 2004, and five and six and seven and uh, I was also you know the internet was becoming a bigger and bigger thing and I was really trying to figure out like how do you build this platform and you know whatever so I started doing some blogging um, like you do and it was through that blogging that I got the attention of Brian Cronin at Comics Should Be Good which runs on CBR mm-hmm. and um, he was like yeah I think you should just you should do a column. You can do whatever you want. Just, you know, tell me what you want to do. And so I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to make it about women in comics. It'll be really broadly that, and we'll call it, she has no head after this horrible, uh, cry for justice promo that had gone out, which Supergirl didn't have a head. And there were all these older superheroes leering at her. That was the inspiration for the name. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so then it just went from there. I mean, basically making no money spending a lot of money on comics so i could write these op-eds and shit and uh it eventually led to some reviewer gigs and some other things and as i branched out into interviewing people it helped build some connections with you know editors and creatives and uh just bit by bit over years so that was that was 2007 i think in 2009 i started writing for cbr and then by I mean, what, it was 2015 before I wrote my first Marvel comic, so 
for anyone who thinks it happens overnight, there's your overnight. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very long <laughs> overnight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so how how does a book like like Gem and the Holograms come about? So with Gem, I. So I'd already written a graphic novel called Heart in a Box, and it was being drawn by Meredith McLaren, my co-creator, and it had been picked up by Dark Horse. And I had wanted to work on Heart in a Box with Sophie originally, Sophie Campbell. Uh, We had sort of become internet friends, and I was a big fan of her work, but she was just too busy. And, you know, it's always hard to work with Sophie because she's a writer as well. So she doesn't need anybody, you know. So you're just very lucky if she's like, yeah, yeah, all right, I'll take pity on you and work on this thing with you. (laughs) So, um, but she had recommended Meredith, and, uh, but I knew she was a really big gem fan. So I had gotten connected to Sarah Gatos over at IDW, and she sort of gave me like a little nudge and she was like, Hey, you know, they haven't announced it yet, but they're going to do this gem and the holograms reboot. Would you have any interest in that? And I was like, um, yes. I mean, first of all, it was a big deal because I hadn't written, even though I had this comic we were working on, it wasn't published. So I was a nobody, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, but so I emailed Sophie right away and I was like, Hey, they're doing this thing. Would you want to do this with me? And uh, she was like, yes, totally. That's awesome. Like, we, we would be great on that, whatever. So we started working on it. We got the go-ahead to pitch. We did a really great pitch. Um, I still today think we really, like, we just laid it all on the, on the, on the field, you know? Um, and there was a point during which the conversation of talking about it where I was like, listen, if you guys want Sophie but not me, like, I understand and I'll bail out if if that's a problem. Like, I understand I don't have any credits. But I think that, uh, you know, it's a great example of you need to create work because I do think a big part of the reason they were willing to take the risk on me, even though I was basically a nobody, was because I was able to hand them, like, 80 pages of Heart in a Box, and they could read it and be like, oh, okay, she knows how to write a comic. Like, we like it. She knows what she's doing, even though she hasn't done anything yet. And good news is Sophie Campbell's a big name so that'll help and you know we'll get her cheap and here we go you know so um but I really lucked out because they were definitely took a huge risk on me one that I think they're happy paid off so well speaking of hard in the hard in the box like when you're working on that and you're like what was it like kind of figuring out how to write a comic book because it's a very specific skill like it's different than other types of writing and you're leaning on a co-creator to kind of bring it visually to life and also kind of laying things out so how did well how, what was that process like to kind of learn that well i mean because i went to scat i mean i think i had a leg up in that way mm. i mean i you know i literally taken comic scripting classes I'm also a very shitty artist, so um, <laughs> I, I think pretty visually, which I think is helpful to a point, and then there's a point where you have to let it go or it gets in the way because you just have to accept that your artist you're working with is 99.9% of the time going to have a better way to do it than, than you're envisioning. Um, that's almost always proved out for me. Um, unless I'm not expressing myself clearly about what we need. And then maybe, you know, that's, that's on me. That's not their fault. So, um, I think, I, I think when I, when I decided to submit heart in a box to uh, dark horse at that time, they still had like a format that they preferred. And so I just like downloaded the template and like, hmm. 
wrote it like that so that they'd be happy with the format. And uh, I've adjusted it over the years, but I still use something that's based on that. Um, and yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, I mean, I think that it was a huge learning experience, but I think it's really a credit to Meredith and how good she is that when I look at heart in a box that doesn't feel to me like my first work it doesn't feel to me like someone who doesn't know what they're doing and I think that's because Meredith carried me a lot because she's just that good you know how many drafts would you say you kind of work through when working on heart in a box to kind of fine-tune how to adapt to that template and make it work um I think that there weren't really that many drafts I think the big change was that it got put in a drawer for like, I don't know, at least six months. And I was probably more like a year. And when I came back to it, I had really fresh eyes about what it should be. And it really changed. I don't want to say too much for people who maybe haven't read it, who are interested in it, but um, the whole ending changed it changed it from just being a story about romantic heartbreak to something much larger to me. And I think more relatable to people. And, um, it was a great example of, uh, revision being your friend and being able to step back and get some distance, have the time to get some distance from something to be really, to be really helpful. Um, but there probably weren't that many drafts of, of that. I mean, we, we locked the script pretty early so that Meredith could get started. Hmm. As you've worked on more and more books, do you find that you will, depending on which artist you, like how much do you modify your style based on the artist that you're working with and the collaboration that may or may not exist depending on the artist? I definitely change my style to a degree. Um, maybe artists would disagree and they'd be like, bitch, all her scripts are overwritten. <laughs> she doesn't change anything. I don't know. I don't know what artists say to each other, but I hate uh, writing a script if I don't know who the artist is because I do think there's a drastic difference there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just try to think about what I love about their style and what I know they seem to like to draw like not just from what they've told me but from I'm looking at their stuff and I can see what they really seem to excel at um some artists you know David Lopez was someone I worked with very early on at Marvel because he was the incredible artist on Captain Marvel and the Carol Corps which I got to co-write with Kelly Sue DeConnick and I mean he doesn't want like really ever unless there were extreme circumstances, he really doesn't want more than five panels on a page. And David is also really probably, and it's funny, this was one of my first experiences because of any artist I've ever worked with, he's the most going rogue guy out there (laughs) where he's like, yeah, you said five panels, but I like it as three or, you know, whatever. (laughs) But honestly, you can't, you can't, begrudge him that because what he does is genius so you're like yeah you're right should have been three like you know so you can't even argue it it's just he's just that good you know so um i think every experience is different um not everyone collaborates the best together like i've been very fortunate to work with almost universally talented people but that doesn't mean every collaboration has been 
smooth, mm-hmm. you know? As you've progressed and worked on more and more books and sometimes more and more books all at once, what is that process like being able to not only uh, handle and balance working on multiple books at the same time, but also, you know, figuring out how to get the different tones and the different characters all kind of right when you're working on so many books at once? I mean, it can really be a struggle. Um, I don't have a life. That helps. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I'm not, I'm not kidding. Like, you know, I don't. I'm very reclusive. I don't go out a lot and do a lot. I don't have children, so I don't have any family I have to take care of. I have, like, my boyfriend and these cats, and, like, that's our deal, you know? So, um, I, uh, so I put a lot of time in. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, um, trying to think of a nice way to say it, but there isn't one. So I'm pretty controlling in that, like, I want, I want the collaboration to be the best it can be and I don't want to hold anyone back, but like, like I review layouts, which not every artist or not every writer does. Now my reason for reviewing layouts and giving notes on layouts if necessary is because I don't ever want to make the artist redraw anything. Mm. And usually I can tell in layouts if we have a problem. Um, so it's really, so, but, but that's not something every editor wants or likes you know so again you come back to this collaboration thing it's not always the best fit even when there's nothing wrong with the individual components you know um someone can be a great editor and just not really enjoy the way that i want to work or vice versa you know absolutely do you find yourself this is kind of an odd question but do you find yourself um for lack of a better term, a daytime writer or a nighttime writer? Like, do you find you get your work, best work done in the evening or in the overnight? Or are you more of a kind of a during the day? Because it's very interesting to kind of hear people's responses and kind of see, have a sense of, you know, what their best and most creative time seems to be. A hundred percent, I'm a night writer. If only because the distractions, which I'm very bad at ignoring, uh, are, are just, they just diminish by like such a huge fraction. Um, but the older I get, the less, uh, the, the less I'm good at gutting it out for an all nighter to send a script at 6am or whatever. Mm. Um, and the more, I find myself inclined at three to be like, no, fuck it. I'm going to bed. I'm tired. And that (laughs) is bad because I haven't fully adjusted to, you know, making that change. Also, my cats really want to be up by like seven. So that's, (laughs) that's for, they really want to be fed around then. So, um, that sort of forced me to become more of a morning person too. So, (laughs) but I still, if I'm struggling with something, it's going to get done in the middle of the night. That's what's inevitably going to happen. You know? Now, when you were working on Gem, did you when you when you started that project, did you have any idea that it was going to go on as long as it did? Like, was that like how far ahead were you kind of coming up with story ideas and scripts or or plots I, or? I thought for sure we'd only get six issues. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know how the market is. Like, you just you don't get long runs. You certainly don't get them for cult properties that haven't that don't have a thriving fan base or a movie behind it. And yes, there was a movie, but you know it was a completely different thing, and it ended up being a huge failure. So it didn't help us a whit, you know. <laughs> um, so I I didn't think, and even when we were a huge a big sort of cult hit and a critical hit. 
Um, and we were having all these articles written about us and all this wonderful stuff was happening. Even then, I didn't think we were going to go to 26 issues or whatever it was. Because um, it was, I mean, it was insane. It was 26 issues plus two specials plus two annuals plus a five-issue Misfits spinoff plus a six-issue crossover story. Like, I I never would have thought we'd, we'd have that much gem. Like, never in a million years. Um, we had done, we plotted the first six, obviously, because that was the first arc. And then I had, like, a, a light summary of what viral would be and then obviously dark gem because we knew sophie wanted to come back for that if we were allowed to do that so you know our big hope was that we would at least get through dark gem but never did i think we would so it was always a wonderful surprise <laughs> <laughs> now when you get do get your first marvel book i mean first of all how like who kind of reaches out or how do you get kind of thrown into the mix and what is it like to work on something where it's happening at the time of, of a big crossover and it's a kind of a, not a what if story per se, but you know, it's part of this kind of battle world. What is it like to kind of be contacted first by Marvel, brought in, and then working on something completely different but still familiar? Uh, it was it was amazing. I mean, I got this email from Sana and she was like, hey, would you be interested in co-writing a thing? And I think I responded just in GIFs, like maybe that one of that... <laughs> <laughs> of, of all those of all those people holding up those yes signs like that one or something and then she sort of laughed and she was like well how would you feel about working with kelly sudaconic and david lopez and i was like i mean i was like i think you've emailed the wrong person at this point but i mean yes uh, yes i'm in um so it was incredible i mean what a great way to learn and what a great way to come in on a care on a character like carol danvers with uh, uh, an incredible voice like Kelly Sudaconic to help show you the ropes uh, with an artist of David Lopez's caliber. Um, it was incredible. It was incredible. It was a dream come true. I, I think the only thing that wasn't a dream come true about it was that everyone admitted that throwing someone into the deep end of the pool on a bizarre Secret Wars mini was a tough beat. But for me, I just saw that, first of all, as a way to prove myself. And second of all, I actually love alternate reality stories. So while there was a lot of dense, crazy stuff we had to figure out, I love an AU story that, like, takes your favorite characters and, like, shows, you know, what-ifs of their life. So uh, it, was a, it was really great for me. What was it like collaborating with Kelly Sue? It was incredible. I, um, you know, every writer collaborates differently and every dynamic is different. I mean, you know, like, for example, when I worked with um, Brennan Fletcher on Power Rangers Pink, he was still above me, in my opinion, but that was much closer to us being colleagues rather than mentor and mentee. Um, so that was like a completely different experience. When I worked with Kelly Sue, it was very clearly a mentor-mentee, and not only that, I was being brought in to help out on something that she'd really just completely defined with, with Carol Danvers on the Captain Marvel role. So, um, you know, and in some ways that was really freeing because I was allowed to just, you know, check any kind of ego at the door and, like, let her knowledge and experience and brilliance sort of wash over me, which I think it totally did. Um you know, and it was a great way to learn, you know, a way that this can work, not that it has to work that way for everyone. 
Now, not not that much longer uh, longer after that, you then come on X. Sorry, not X Force, A Force. Um, now, and that's I guess how did that kind of come about? Because again, it started without you, and then you're on it, and then you're the main writer. How did that kind of yeah. process work? Well, that was a really weird story where um, I was actually working on, and it had been approved. Hold up, my cat is deciding now it's the time to cuddle. Hey, you you can lie down, but not with your butt in my face. <laughs> Come on. I'm glad that you specified it was your cat. Hey, hey, what are you doing? Honey, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I, I mean, you can lie down, but you got to lie down. You can't just sit there. Oh, anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, so she, um, uh, so, so what happened was I had, pit, I had been asked to pitch for a new sort of YA Thunderbolts. And it had been a really long, frustrating, exhausting pitch process. And but I had gotten it, and we were reworking it and everything. And I had even written the first issue. And then I get that email that every writer dreads. And I don't know if editors just understand that we dread it, and they just don't care, or if they're just sort of unaware. Where they're like, yeah, uh, when's a good time to talk? And you're like, oh, oh no. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, this is bad. It's going to be bad. And so, yeah, it was like the best worst call ever. I often describe it as someone taking the puppy you love and drowning it in a river in front of you and then handing you an adorable kitten that needs to be taken care of. Uh, and in this representation, Thunderbolts is the puppy that I was so in love with uh, that got killed in front of me, and A-Force was the kitten that needed help. So um, <laughs> it ended up being a great thing in the long run because I don't think our Thunderbolts, especially because it was a weird YA take, which was what they wanted, but I think would be a hard sell for people who really want the sort of classic Thunderbolts. And it was a bunch of you know, D-list or worse characters that I was using, you know, so I don't think we would have made it even six issues. Um, so in that way, A-Force was a far more high profile, you know, cool project to get, but I did inherit it under some intense circumstances, you know, including, you know, uh, Willow was having some family emergencies, so she'd written the first issue, and she very lightly plotted the first four, but then after that, like, I mean, I couldn't even really get her to consult on the rest of those three, because she was really having some very, you know, a real family emergency, like, she, she was solely checked out, and so it was pretty high profile to just be dropped in there, and also to be inheriting someone else's plot that you sort of couldn't really question them on and you just had to make the best of it you know so it was tricky it was tricky but I really fell in love with it and I was devastated when it got cancelled because I loved it so much especially those issues those three issues I did with Ben Caldwell mm -hmm. like that was sort of my first taste of yeah I love this thing I'm doing with this team and I love the thing we're actually creating you know absolutely um, with regards to the, the Thunderbolts that didn't happen, you mentioned that it had like a lot of D-list. Who was kind of the, the biggest name character that you would have been using? Um, probably the biggest name character 
and I sort of talk about this all the time when people ask me, like, what X-Men characters are my favorites. I'm always like, Armor, because I've been trying to write that bitch since 2015, <laughs> and I can't ever get her for more than, like, a panel or two. It's driving me crazy. Um, she was probably the biggest name. It was, um, it was basically like, um, it was a, it was a future Molly Hayes, sort of like the one that appeared in Battle of the Atom, but like, sort of a little bit mean, laconic, but just hugely muscled Molly Hayes. <laughs> uh, so it was like a time-displaced Molly Hayes, um, and it was armor, it was a new Phantom X type character who was a young guy called Phantom X Five. Um, it was this new character called Galaxy. It was Countess, who I used as the bad guy in the Ben Caldwell A Force arc. Yeah. Um, and then I can't remember one version we used. Um, I don't know. It got switched out a bunch of times. At one point, Chase. Runaways was involved as a sort of mentor situation. Um, it was, it, listen, it was a really fun book. I've tried to retool that pitch a couple times. Uh, the current version I have it in, it's called The Omegas. And I'd love it if I can accrue enough power at Marvel one day that someone will just green light it without looking too hard. And then I'll just <laughs> do this super weird, cool book and we'll see. But um, it's, uh, it's, you know, I think it would have been a huge failure as a Thunderbolts book, even though that was sort of the directive. And, and, I, think the, and I think they changed their mind about that. And I don't, I don't know why. I'm not privy to, oh, hey, it turns out we thought we wanted this and then we changed our mind. We thought we wanted this and then we hated what you did. I have no idea. But, I mean, what ended up coming out was Jim Zub's Thunderbolts, which was, you know, a completely different thing than sort of my directives so um you know these things change for sure now when when you start working on well first of all how does mighty Morphin power rangers pink happen um and what is it like to work on and this could also extend to gem as well what is it like to work on you know licensed properties that are adaptations of something that pre-exists um i think that the the last question the licensed properties um completely depends on your licensor um power rangers pink was no disrespect a really tough job um for whatever reason even though saban liked the pitch i assume because they greenlit it you know they just really had just an insane number of notes first at the macro stage and then at the nitpicking stage. And it's like, I feel like the boom editors were really trying their best to protect us and to, 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 to guide it through. But it was a very frustrating process. And I can't speak for Brendan, but I think he and I both felt at some point, like the cool thing we came in trying to do was just getting watered down more and more and more with every single pass we had to do. It was a really tough situation. Um, but almost every other experience I've had is a Ghostbusters, Gem, um, Nancy Drew. These have all been really great experiences. And, of course, Marvel, which is a different sort of thing. It's not the same as working with a licensor. But, you know, you certainly still have a lot of restrictions. Those have all been really great. I ran into some problems on A-Force. But 
that was mostly about any time you're the team book and the characters are appearing in other big books, like their own solo or something, you're just limited in the things you're allowed to do. I have a lot of really cool things I wanted to do with Medusa and She-Hulk especially, Mm -hmm. and I just got told no a lot because they were doing other things with them and it didn't fit, you know? And, you know, you've got to learn to be nimble and be flexible in that shared continuity like that. But that's a big reason why you get a lot more focus on Nico and Dazzler in those stories is because they weren't appearing in other stories. And so nobody had sort of called dibs on them, you know? Mm -hmm. If you could pick kind of one Marvel character to absolutely have dibs, you never had to worry about anything else they're doing anywhere else. You are the primary person. Which character would you want to direct that you never had to worry about any interference? You are the one dictating the direction for that character and everyone else has to kind of play around you. I mean, it's pretty hard not to see Kate Bishop. Mm. I mean, I just love her so much. It's a little absurd. (laughs) Um, But Rogue is a character that is a lot easier to screw up, I think, than Kate Bishop at this point. So maybe that's a safer call. Uh, I'd love to write She-Hulk. Um, I'd, th- I'd love to write Captain Marvel. I mean, you know, there's, God, there's so many. There's so many. I will say that I wish we got to see more of Ben Caldwell's and my version of Medusa. Um, that she ended up just. I, I thought. I thought she really came alive in our book in a way. I'm sure for some people she felt really out of character, and that's a totally legit take. But. To me, it was just her sort of getting to, no pun, let her hair down because (laughs) she's got a lot of responsibility all the time. And here she was on this team of women doing these somewhat ridiculous missions. And especially once She-Hulk took control of that group, she was like, oh, this is actually better. I can just be like the salty teenage character who is annoyed with everything. And I just loved her. She was so fun. Like, to me, it was a breakthrough with the character, the same sort of thing you see with Emma Frost under some writers, you know, when she really started to break out. Um, plus, a, a bitchy truth teller character is, like, so much fun. It, it adds such an element of contrast, you know. I always see fans wanting to throw together these similar characters And I understand why that they think that's a good idea. It's actually the worst idea. (laughs) Like, you want characters who are not the same. You want characters who who, who contradict each other, who will be mean to each other, who hold each other's feet to the fire. And I mean, sure, you can have some, and they don't have to not be friends, because I want nothing more than them to go through that shit and come out the other side like a family. Like, that's what I want. But if they're already a family, bah, come on. Where's the where's the drama? Where's the intrigue, you know? Absolutely. Now, to go back to the licensing question uh, for a moment. Oh, right. Um, just because I, there was kind of the one big one we didn't talk about was Captain Phasma. <sighs> yeah, I mean, well, you can't can't ask for that i mean obviously you're going to be second fiddle to what they've got going on there uh but that experience was actually really easy i mean i think you know lucasfilm is so organized that i'm sorry i have to take a drink sorry um lucasfilm is so organized that you really take care of most of the problems that they're going to have with it in the pitch phase. So 
once you get past that, I, I found them to be really hands-off and flexible. Like, as long as you were playing within their rules, like, they really wanted you to tell a great story, and they tried to get out of your way. Hmm. What, what was it like working with Marco in that book? Oh, he was great. So fun. So fun. He's incredibly fast, especially for what a detailed style he has. And he's like, he's just really smart and intuitive and just a real delight. I mean, it's always, it's always crazy when these super talents turn out to be just like really nice guys who are like great collaborators. You're like, really? Are you sure you don't want to be like a diva in a nightmare? But no, totally (laughs) nice. Totally, totally a great guy. I would work with him a million times. His character work is just, everyone looks so nice. <laughs> yeah, it's a, I mean, listen, it's a, it's not a style that many people can do, uh, especially in a monthly book. Uh, it's amazing that he can do it. For sure. You no. should have, you should have been a fly on the wall though, when he and I found out that we, well, I knew we weren't going to be able to take off the helmet. I just knew it because I knew they're never going to give that to the comic book, right? Um, he apparently didn't know and he was like no he's like what we can't ever take it off and I was like yeah it's brutal and then we found out so we can't ever take it off and we can't do they didn't want internal narration which in retrospect and even when I was writing it they're 100% right about uh, they, they felt like it needed to be the same similar to Darth Vader where you're not really in the head right mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think they're totally right but when you first hear that and you're like wait so I have to make people care about this character who's a villain who we can't ever see her face to see her expressions she's incredibly laconic because she doesn't let anyone in and she doesn't say a lot and we can't be in hearing her thoughts what the hell are we gonna do? Like it was very scary for a minute there, but um, you know, it proved a really great challenge, and I sort of think we we killed it. Well, I think Marco did especially a good job because like, it's hard to emote from a mask. Like that's just difficult. He, like that's not an easy had, thing to do. He had the way harder task, <laughs> much harder, much harder. <laughs> Like whenever I, same thing goes for like yeah when you see Darth Vader like first of all it, Darth Vader is so specific that there's you know some artists just can't get that down like that's a, such a like everyone knows what Darth Vader looks like but actually showing it to evoke a sense of motion and showing it from different angles can be quite difficult so artists who can really nail that are amazing at it yeah no it's 100% true so, I mean I thought we had we had a disadvantage over Vader to me because people know and understand who Vader is much more than Phasma. She's still far more mysterious. Um, but but it's a very similar problem set, yes. So And it's way harder on Marco than me, even though it was hard <laughs> on me. I, I don't want us to think it wasn't hard on me. Let's give me my due. <laughs> <laughs> so I do want to ask, how, how did you come to write Kate Bishop uh, in her own book? That's that's like that's yeah, as you said like that's an an amazing character, such a gift to the Marvel universe that we have her. Um, but like, how did you get to to write her own adventures? So before I was even writing for Marvel, before I even got the gem pitch, when I was still sort of building my connections, I was in love with the Matt Fraction, David Aja, Annie Wu, Hollingsworth, Hawkeye like everyone. And I was like, they should spin a Hawkeye investigations book out of this and they should let me write it. And so I started developing this pitch and 
I developed the pitch, I workshopped it, I whatever. I then somehow got it eventually to Janine Schaefer, who was still working there then. I can't remember if she gave me notes or if she just passed it on, but it eventually got into Sana's hands, uh, future editor of the book. And I don't know if that... I don't know if she saw it before I got the Captain Marvel and the Carol Core co-write gig or not. I'm not clear on that. I don't even know if she remembers. I'm sure she doesn't stay up nights being like, oh, what's the complex history of how that happened? Um, (laughs) (laughs) But at some point in us talking about Captain Marvel and Carol Core, she brought it up or I brought it up and, and it was that she liked it and we should talk about it some more. And so we started talking about it, but and and it makes a lot more sense to me in retrospect now. Uh, initially, you know, even though I, I wouldn't say I was frustrated, but I was like, "Why is this taking so long? Like, if it's a no, it's a no. Like, they should just tell me." But now I've seen how it all works, and you know, it's planned so far out, and you really have to find the right time and location to slot those things in. And so Sana had all this information I didn't have about what was going to be happening in Hawkeye books and not, and, you know, et cetera. And so I had actually about given up, though, and I was trying to develop some plotting for A-Force. And I thought, oh, you know, I could use this Kate Bishop thing that I was going to do, or I could use a version of it. Um, Maybe I'll just check with Sana and see if that's really dead, because I think it is. And so I emailed her, and she's like, actually, I was going to email you this week. I want to get started on it. And I was like, what? That's amazing. (laughs) So I just just switched gears. I did a different plot for A-Force, and we started developing developing it. Um, And it, it was a very long lead time, not only to get to go, but then I think we started talking about it in, like, maybe, like, March or April, like somewhere around then. And of course the first book didn't come out until December. So it was a pretty long lead time still, but I think it really helped the book because I think that Hawkeye book, um, I think it knows what it is on page one and it's really cohesive in that way. Uh, you can read it all together and the consistency of the talent on the book you know, uh, Leonardo Romero, I'll spend my whole life trying to work with that guy again. And I'll try to spend my whole life trying to capture the magic of that whole team. It was just perfect. Um, but I do have to give a special shout out to, to, uh, Michael, uh, Michael Walsh, because Mm. it takes a real skill to be able to come into a book that's working that well and just drop yourself in for two issues and then later for a single issue and the book just not really skip a beat. Mm-hmm. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing. Well, so. What I really liked about your Hawkeye run especially is that, I mean, you really nailed her voice in a way that it felt like she was just continuing on from the Fraction run in a way that was so seamless, but still still you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I think um, I, I just said this um, on this podcast I was on the other day or this interview I did the other day that you know, I think there are some people that didn't initially love the Kate Bishop voice that I was using and felt it was too different from what Fraction and Aja were doing. Interesting. Um, but, and I think that's true. But I don't think it's different than what Fraction and Wu were doing. Because when I look at that Hawkeye, which is one of my favorite 
comics of all time. I see two very different Kate Bishops, and I have never talked to Matt Fraction about this, so I could be completely wrong, but my interpretation is that the Matt Fraction, David Aja, Kate is Clint's perception of Kate. Huh. Matt Fraction, Annie Wu's Kate is Kate's perception of Kate. And since Clint is mostly not in our book, we needed to be doing Kate's perception of Kate, like who Kate thinks she is, uh, how others are seeing her as she develops as a young woman. Um, because I just think the the Aja Kate uh, is, she's way more together, right? Mm-hmm. She's sort of perfect. She's sort of flawless. She's way better than Clint, right? But Annie Wu trying to be a detective Kate is sort of a mess and a little bit like we, we were doing, you know? She's still trying to figure it out. And so that was sort of how I approached that. And, you know, I get it if people look at that Fraction Aja stuff and don't see a direct connect. And I can't, I can't even fault them for that because I love those books so much. I mean, Hawkeye number three is one of my favorite comics of all time, literally. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't begrudge that. I just, that was sort of my approach to it. It is interesting to look at that series because it was so hugely transformative for those two characters because they will never go back to what they were before that. Uh, if it ever happens, it'll be a long time. But like the, the that series changed forever how Clint was written. Yeah. I. It's funny that you say that because I was... I think I was on another podcast that was talking, I was talking about voice and that like, I understand why fans get upset about it when they feel like a voice is not right. And it's, it's hard to argue with that because there are certainly a lot of examples of badly written and badly researched comics out there, right? Mm -hmm. That totally happens and it burns us badly and it sucks. But the truth is at the end of the day, your interpretation of the voice isn't necessarily the same as mine. So just because you think it sounds wrong doesn't make it wrong. It makes it my version. Mm -hmm. And to, and in fact, We've got a lot of examples, Hawkeye being prime, of a wrong, quote-unquote, take being a a, a definitive evolution for a character. And that's amazing. That's, like, the greatest thing ever. Um, It's interesting, yeah, because I think as comic fans, we almost become complacent that that can't happen. Like, characters are characters are the characters, but they do change. They do, and some of them in really amazing ways. Like Hawkeye, I would say Emma Frost is another good example. Absolutely. Um, I had another good one that I trotted out the other day. Oh, I know that that was one of the ways that we were talking about it, is that I said that I firmly believe all those things I just said, but that it was funny, it was not super helpful to me with Jessica Jones, because she's a rare example where she's been so... Uh, in her own book by her own creator she's been so consistently written she's a, a she's a rare example of a character that really does have uh, one particular voice not that you can't change it but it's pretty easy to suss out something feeling really wrong with that you know mm-hmm. because she's had such a consistent vision almost the way a creator owned character would you know 
for sure. One of the an interesting book I find to read right now is uh, Old Man Hawkeye because it feels like it has to thread a needle between writing a version of Hawkeye that lines up with Old Man Old Man Logan's Hawkeye, who was pre yeah. pre that evolution of the character, but also marrying it with what we know of the character now and trying to find a way to make it accurate to both. Yeah. I, I think thread the needle is a is a perfect turn of phrase for that book, and it does it really masterfully. Absolutely, I'm shocked by it every every month. I'm just like this is because like, it almost feels like it shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we've kind of seen that we've seen this world already, but not from this perspective, and not from a slightly younger version of Hawkeye. Not too much younger, but just a little bit before we're used to seeing him. And yeah, it's different, but interesting. Yeah. Uh, moving forward, so uh, this might be a sensitive topic, but how did it kind of happen or how is it relayed that Hawkeye wouldn't be continuing? Well, we actually we actually got canceled at 10, although I begged them to give me 11 because we were supposed to be 12. So they were really like cutting us off. I mean, two issues is hard. Hmm. To, it's really hard to absorb. Um to wrap up your run uh, one issue is a little more doable and so they agreed so then we were cancelled at 11 and then we were uncancelled um, I think probably trade sales doing well plus great we were getting great cr- critical acclaim etc um, so then we got to 16 and I knew we weren't going to get more than 16. I mean, the hope was with the legacy stuff and bringing Clint in, maybe it would, you know, get us more. But I knew that was going to be it. And um, and it was hard to feel bad about that because as much as I wanted Kate to go on forever, and it felt bad because Kate was a definite experience of I have people like every day on my Tumblr and Twitter had just discovering it and then shocked to find out that it's no longer, you know, coming out. Um, and so that's always a bummer to realize. Um, but you know, a 16 issue run, like it's pretty long. Unfortunately, like I wish that wasn't a true statement, but 16 issues is three trades. It's pretty decent. Like, it's hard to get that in modern comics unless you're called Batman or Wolverine, you know? Um, For sure, yeah. Or Avengers or something, you know, like that. A solo cult classic character, 16 is pretty good. And I am very thankful that we got that much. And then sort of as we were wrapping that, it was the West Coast Avengers became a thing where Marvel, you know, Marvel really loved Hawkeye. I think I think they were genuinely disappointed that it didn't do better because I think they really wanted to support the book, which I really appreciated. It made me feel very loved, you know? And I think that they saw, they're like, listen, we can't seem to make a go of this with just a solo character, but we love this world and setting that Hawkeye has created with this LA base. We love Kate Bishop and what she's doing there. So what if we bring back a beloved title West Coast Avengers and we throw a lot of other characters at it to make it a more viable you know uh, sales purchase and let's see and uh, and so that was sort of how that happened what has I mean kind of the, the pre-buzz reaction been with West Coast Avengers it's really it's really tough I 
I continually get surprised. Like, I think I know what people are going to think, and then I'm just blindsided. So I try not to get too caught up in it. But um, I think people are going to be blown away, especially because Stefano's work is is so great. Like, he's one of those few artists that really can 100% do the balls-to-the-wall action and then who can also completely handle all the comedy elements, you know? Um not everybody can do that, and uh, he's just bringing it on this book. I, I think issue one, it's 30 pages. It's it's so cool. It's it's so fun. I, I, I feel like you'd have to just be dead inside to not enjoy it, but <laughs> what, do, what do I know? <laughs> when, when writing it and putting it together, are there any characters that have kind of jumped up as being like a surprise favorite for you to write or just like so much fun to write that it's like, why didn't I get to use this character before? Yeah, I mean, you know, there was a lot of push and pull on West Coast Avengers when we were developing it, and we didn't have the kind of time that we had when we were developing Hawkeye, and we had that long lead time. We had to go pretty fast, especially because they wanted to take the sting out for people and let them know that Kate was coming back, and even if they weren't saying what it was going to be. And so that meant we had to commit to, okay, we're going to figure this out. If we're going to put the announcement in the, the issue 16, then that puts us on a time clock, you know? So, um, I was much more interested in trying to merge Kate with some more classic West Coast Avengers, in part just because I thought that's what the fans were going to want after this long, you know, 20 plus years of no West Coast Avengers. And so I sort of kept pushing for the more classic roster, but they just really didn't see it that way. And we we had a lot of push and pull to the point where I was like, someone's going to take me off this if I keep, like, you know, if I keep pushing back so hard, they're going to be like, you know what, just give it to someone else. Um, but it was one of those great examples where that pushing and pulling between you and editors ends up really creating a good thing that really makes you think through how to pursue something. And, um, so when we landed on, and, and, and I should also learn this lesson because, you know, something that happened to me on A-Force, when I got A-Force, the first thing I thought was, well, I wonder if they'll let me get rid of Medusa and Dazzler because I'm just not interested in them. I don't care for those characters. I, I, there are so many other female characters I'd love to put in here. And I didn't get the sense anyone was going to let me do that, so I didn't even ask. And those turned out to be two of my favorite characters to write. And so you got to learn that lesson, right? And um, I did not want, on the surface of things, I did not want Quentin Choir and Gwenpool. And I pushed back pretty hard. I didn't want them for different reasons, but they were legit. And so, of course, Gwen especially has turned out to be one of my favorite characters to write in the book. Uh, Quentin, too, but Quentin's just got such a huge power set. I always struggle with that a little bit, which probably makes me not a great cosmic superhero writer, and I hope I'll get better at it. But, you know, there's a street-levelness to a character like Jessica or Kate that's very natural to me, which allows them to be more fallible and to fuck up, and I like those things. Um it's harder when you've got someone who is an omega level mutant who can basically do anything. And you're like, how do I write this character? So he can't just solve all the problems or else he looks like an incompetent douchebag. Right. (laughs) So it's a little tricky. And that was why I was afraid of Quentin. Um, I was afraid of Gwenpool mostly because I think her series is brilliant 
and I think it's highly underrated and underread. Um, and I do, I, I do agree with you there. It's definitely underread, but it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it's great. And but you have to be willing to break some things to bring her into uh, an ensemble book mm-hmm. and have it still work. And initially, I was afraid. I wasn't sure how to do that. And then after I thought I figured it out, I was worried it would really upset fans. Um, and it might. Um, the things we're doing with her might upset people. But, I mean, I, I think the thing I would say to that is that she wasn't going to have a book. And if you can't find a way to make the character work in the universe, then she doesn't have a future. Hmm. And the things we're doing with her... I think will make that problem easier to deal with and give her a better, brighter future. Um, even if, I mean, I just think if it's not that people are not going to like what we're doing with her. It's that how do you follow up what Hastings did? It, it, it's really difficult because it's, it's sort of genre bending. It breaks the boundaries in all these smart ways and you can't go back to that well now. So, you know, he already did it as well as you could do it. So you have to find another angle. So Will we ever see Baytrock in your book? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the other thing with Gwen in particular that's tough is that, you know, her book was really great. It went on for more issues than, than Kate's book. So it's super well-developed and fleshed out. And when you import people into an ensemble book, uh, you know, uh, you, you basically lose the, their supporting cast. And because it's based around Kate and it's Hawkeye Investigations, if there's any supporting cast we're using, it's sort of coming from Kate. So I, I feel bad about that as well with, with Gwen because she has really well-developed stuff there. Although, I mean, in fairness, like, so reading Gwenpool and at the end, well, I guess the second last issue when she says goodbye to Baytrock and kind of has that kind of wink that you're going to show up again, you're not going to be like this, is so sad that I almost yeah. don't ever want to see them back together again just because that was right. such a very honest and true moment of that book. And, like, that, it's such a great book that kind of exists as its own thing. And I'm happy that she's going to still exist and be in the universe and that you're going to get to use her. I'm excited to see what direction she goes in. But, yeah, like, it's... You know, that, that that book is a perfect little book, and hopefully someday it'll be omnibus in one big format. But I'm just glad the character still exists, because a character that should have, maybe could have been a joke, should have been a joke, was so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, she's she's great. She's great. I She's sort of secretly, I mean, you, you have to be pretty fun uh, in order to steal the spotlight from my girl Kate, who's <laughs> also being written by the person who, you know, sort of fell in love with her in the first place like that's Gwen's pretty fun like she's she's got some interesting angles to her that I, I hope people are gonna find interesting so uh, we'll see so I'll try to wrap us up very soon. I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk to you about two, well, at least two different things. Uh, the first being obviously working on Rogue and Gambit and now working on Mr. and Mrs. X. Um, when you were working on Rogue and Gambit, was Mr. and Mrs. X already being kind of pitched as the next project that you'd work on with those characters? Or was that kind of after? Or well, how did the sequence of events work on your side? Because obviously, as a fan, we just knew that there was a classified book coming out. 
Right. Um, so I found out, um, so let's see, I started, I was pitching and developing Gambit and Rogue in June of last year. Is that right? Yeah. So then I was like writing it by August and it was from whatever their fall retreat was, I guess in October. So I'd written like two issues and it was sort of coming down. And we had always intended like, this is the story. This is the story we're going to tell, but there's a way that we can pivot on the ending to leave it, to have them walk away from each other or to have them like recommit. We can go either way. And we're doing that on purpose because we haven't decided yet. And then they did the summit and there was some rumblings that they were going to get married. And I was not really pleased. I mean, I wasn't at the summit, so I was hearing it third hand, which is not a great way to hear news. Right. And, um, you know, I just thought it was too soon. I thought even if I can get these guys back together, it's too soon. Plus we're going to be robbing them of all that fun stuff that they should be getting to do. And, you know, so I just wasn't entirely convinced that, uh, it was the way to go. But the more I thought about it, the more sense it made. I also knew it was probably the only way for them to get their own ongoing, you know, um, miniseries trades don't miniseries sales don't do that well. So the odds of them getting another chapter to explore that was unlikely unless there was sort of a plot reason to, to exploit, you know? Um, so yeah, so once we knew that Marvel was definitely interested in that direction, I began tailoring the ending to set it up for that, to tee it up for that uh, unexpected spontaneous marriage, and <laughs> yeah, and the rest is history, I guess. So, what was the kind of the research part of the of the job of kind of putting together first the first miniseries and now the new one in terms of not only getting the voices down, which was probably a bit easier, but also getting all the pieces of continuity and their histories to kind of line up and figure out how do we kind of have these people come together and recognize things that have happened but still move forward. Well, I mean, once you and this has been a complaint a little bit by some critics is that it's not that the villain is so like perfectly set up to be this story. And I'm like, yeah, that's how stories are written. First of all. (laughs) And, um, second of all, like, yeah, I mean, we wanted the sort of mission to end up being the sort of almost MacGuffin, right. Um, set up there to force them to deal with this stuff. And it's absolutely got an element of contrivance to it, but you know, hopefully we made it as organic as possible. Um, so I, I mostly, it was just rereading. It was rereading a ton of stuff. Although I reread a ton of stuff before I pitched it because when I was first pitching it to my editor, Darren, you know, we had this conversation. I'm like, yeah, I think it'll just be like a really fun sort of adventure romp. Maybe we'll add some high stuff. Cause that's such a fun element of Gambit that, you know, like, it's fun to see Rogue and out of her element, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, moonlighting plus superheroes. Yeah, it's going to be great. <laughs> and then I went off and I reread all this stuff and I came back to him with this like sort of indie uh, Rogue and Gambit meets Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind with a little bit of with a little bit of moonlighting thrown in there. And he was like, um, what happened? And I was like, here's what happened. I reread 
decades of Gambit and Rogue stuff. And while there's some really great stuff in there, when you reread it all like that, you can see that a lot of it is the same. And I don't think we're going to be able to make a splash with these characters and give people something to talk about unless we try to do something different, unless we're a little bolder in our approach. I was like, so I agree with you. There's not enough punching and kicking in it. Like, let's let's find the happy medium between this super indie thing I'm, you know, doing and the superhero of it all, and let's meet in the middle. And that's what we did. And I think the I think the I think it's stronger for it. I think if we'd done my first version of it, um, it might have been a great little indie book, but it wouldn't have been a very good superhero book. Hmm. And it needed to be both. I think. As a fan, when you have the when you have the artwork coming in, and you actually have all the different versions of the characters represented on the page, was that like was it as much fun for you just to, as as the fan part of you to be able to see all the different versions of those characters kind of represented on the page as they're having those big fight sequences? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you, I never buy original art from my artist or anyone else just because I don't have the I don't have the pockets for it. But I bought two, I actually bought three of Perez's pages. Oh, really? Um, one of them I bought for someone else, but two, I bought two for myself. One is the first kiss, the new first kiss from uh, issue two, and then one is the and the other one is the kiss from five where she's all transformed, and then you see all those other kisses sort of surrounding them. Um, so yeah, I was pretty into it. Um, <laughs> I was very, those scripts were very detailed because, I mean, I would give Perret, like, this is the panel, these are the panels we need, like, this is the very specific thing we're referencing, so it was a really detailed script, and he was a real trooper about it. Uh, I mean, I'm sure on one level he's glad he didn't have to come up with all of that, but I think there's probably a middle ground where you're like, mm, I'm glad I'm not having to do all this hunting and fishing on my own, but... I'd also love to not be in a stranglehold of like, oh, hey, draw this Jim Lee panel, you know? Uh, (laughs) So he was really great about it. And I think he delivered really incredible work. I think it's some of his best work I've ever seen. So moving into Mr. and Mrs. X, so it has like a similar vibe but still different because we've moved on to a different place with these characters. And then you spend a lot of time in the first issue kind of showing what the wedding ends up being. How much fun was that to kind of put together and kind of envision how these characters would be interacting and what they'd be doing right after X-Men 30? Yeah, it was really fun. I mean, I think, you know, Darren, my editor, sort of wisely just stayed out of my way when I was talking about the wedding stuff. I think he could just hear in my voice like... I'd already made up my mind what some of these scenes were going to be. And he's like, I'll just live to fight another day on some different battles because (laughs) it'll be a nightmare if I have to fight her on these. So, um, yeah, it was really fun. I really enjoyed doing it. I think Oscar is super great. He's got a really fun, clean, light, energetic style that I think is very fitting for Rogue and Gambit. Um, you know, I mean, my big worry with, with Mr. and Mrs. X is that it's not as it's not deep in the same way that Rogan Gambit is, and that's deliberate, and I think it's fine. But you know, if you're coming in expecting Rogan Gambit, like maybe you're disappointed. And my argument would be, well, yeah, but we already did that. We already told that story, so we're not going to just go back to that well. Mm-hmm. We want to move forward. 
but I can understand, like, there were a lot of layers and complexity in that story, and not that we don't have some layers and complexity, but this is a more traditional, straightforward adventure story, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I did, I, I loved the way that you wrote Jubilee at the wedding. It was just, <laughs> she felt like a fan, you know, like, a, yeah. just kind of yeah. freaking out about everything, and it just felt very, yeah. very fun, and definitely added a nice sense of levity without taking it too seriously. Like, this this character's kind of over the top, but it was very fun. Thank you. Thank you. I feel like Jubilee definitely seems like the kind of gal that would accidentally get super caught up in it, you know? Well, she's had quite a life, so I feel like something like this, which is, you know, happiness, would it would kind of be a, an exciting thing to finally have good things happen. Yeah, um, for sure. I also did I really love, um, you had Iceman and Nightcrawler talking about not being on Team Gambit. Yeah. Which I, thought, I don't know why that cracked me up when I read it, but it just felt I mean, so funny. Thank you. I, I feel like some people online are really mad about that. Oh, really? And I... I, I mean, honestly, it's super misinterpreted. And, and listen, it's that's my fault. Like, I, I can only, you know, I, I can't blame other people for the way they interpret uh, things I put on the page. It's my responsibility. Um, but the way it's intended is their family. Of course, they're giving him a hard time. Like... Mm-hmm they don't really not like Gambit like they would never say that if they didn't really like Gambit like when you don't like someone you don't go to his momentary bride who his his about to be bride and all his other teammates and family and like say you don't like Gambit no you would fucking gossip behind his back and like say horrible shit no it's like it's like brothers giving each other a hard Time. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, it's a real misinterpretation to me. But um, you know, I'm sorry that it upsets some people. I certainly don't mean that that Bobby and Kurt don't like Gambit. Of course, they like Gambit. <laughs> it did feel like a good-natured ribbing, to be fair. Like I it didn't feel like an actual malicious thing. It was just again a nice, funny moment. And to be honest, I mean, he is as much as he's been part of the team for a long time. He's still Gambit. Like he's still the one who's. Well, yeah, I mean- He's still shady sometimes, right? Like, even in every friend group, there's always that one guy or one yeah, girl. I mean, I mean, but that's how someone gives you a hard time, right? They don't give you a hard time by going, oh, hey, you're super responsible. You know, they go, hey, no, you're, I don't trust you with my friend or I don't trust you with my sister because you're shady, man. Or, you know, you like, you pick the thing someone's sort of sensitive about. I feel like I'm coming off like a real dick here. Like, I'm just mean to my friends all the time. But, I guess I just, I mean, I grew up with brothers. Mm. I, 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 you just, you're, you're always joking around. Like, I don't know. It just, it seemed obvious to me. And I also like the moment of Rogue being like, hey, shut up. Like, be yeah. nice. This is my guy. Like, yeah. back off. Well, um, similarly, I also really liked your use of Mystique because I didn't see it coming. Like, it was just kind of like, well, of course she's there, but it didn't feel like yeah. it was going to be there. And uh, I like that whole moment. And again, that, you know, this is a happy moment, so it's gonna you're going to kind of play against type of what you might expect. And, you know, I think we're used to Marvel weddings, going back to, you know, Mr. Fantastic, Invisible Woman, always kind of having fisticuffs of some kind. But it's yeah, kind of not, yeah. nice to not have that. And even yeah. in that moment, I love when Kurt's like, I mean, I'm blue, too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's the most gutting thing to me. It's like, seriously, I'm standing right here. Like, come on. Um, 
but you know, it's funny that you like this curve. You're, you're definitely my audience that is getting me. Um, because a lot of people seem to have a problem with the mystique thing too, because I don't know, there's some issue with, they don't think she'd be there, which is crazy to me because if I can shape shift and I am a notorious schemer and there's a big X-Men wedding, of course I'm going to that. Of course. I'm just going to pick someone who doesn't show up, and I'm just going to go in their place. Either because it's fun, and I can do that, or because I think shenanigans might go down. Because, I mean, it is the X-Men after all. Of course there will be shenanigans to entertain me. (laughs) Or because I've got some kind of nefarious plan, or I'm just working on whatever my next plan will be. Like, I 100% think Mystique is accidentally there. Like, I mean, I guess I wouldn't have written it that way if I didn't think that. But a lot of people are like, well, it makes no sense she'd be at Kitty and Colossus' wedding. It's like, have you met Mystique? Like, she wants to have her hands in everything. Of course she'd be there. Well, she but, originally uh, worked in intelligence and was like a spy, and she's the best spy power ever, so. Yes, yes, I don't know. Anyway, everyone has their own personal opinion about how things should be. I get it. We can't, we can't service all of it. I mean, um, there's a lot weirder stuff that Mystique has decided to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess some of the other issue people have is that they feel like Rogue forgives her too easily. But, I mean, I don't really think there's any forgiveness on that page. I just think it's momentary truce, right? It's, mm-hmm. I don't want you to wreck my beautiful day. I don't want to have a fight with you right now. Can you not be a nightmare for ten minutes so that we can get through this, you know? Like... That's that's all it is to me. It's not like, oh, they fixed everything. Oh, hell no. Oh, and we've seen truces before. So, again, it shouldn't be a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the last thing I'll ask about. So suddenly out of nowhere, here comes Jessica Jones. Yes, except for I've been working on it for like nine months. That's so the thing, right? For me, it was brutal, man. Between that and the plex uh, classified thing it was a really rough uh, spring and early summer um, just waiting so long for those things to go and seeing all this speculation about it and even after it came out like all this continued stuff about Mr. and Mrs. X like why would you keep that a secret there's absolutely no reason to keep that as a secret there's a hundred percent a reason to keep it a secret <laughs> and that was that was to try and protect the plot twist for as long as possible in X-Men Gold to not ruin people's reading experience. And, you know, people can disagree all day long with what Marvel decided to do. Uh, but I will tell you right now, I was in the room and on the email chains for all those conversations. Every angle was discussed ad nauseum, like it was thought about so much and you can disagree or not about how it was executed or the reasons behind it. Um, but everybody put a lot of thought into it and tried really hard to preserve the reading experience. Um, and unfortunately it's the internet. So, uh, you can't completely preserve that experience no matter how hard you try, but everyone tried real hard. Um, as for Jessica Jones, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm mixed on that. Like, I feel like we got a ton of great PR um, day of. I feel like we just dominated the the news cycle, dropping the announcement plus 40 pages on the world, like, download it now. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, some people are not just ready to spend five bucks on a comic all of a sudden on Wednesday. So, I don't know. Mixed. I I, I think in the case of Jessica Jones... um, you know, it's a learning curve. 
to doing this um, digital only or digital only first or whatever it's called. Um, so, you know, this first guy through the wall gets bloody. What are you going to do? <laughs> Well, I have to say, so I've read Jessica Jones, and it's I thought it was fantastic. And it's again, it's such a hard task when you have had one one person really fueling that character's identity for so long and writing most of her appearances that to have anyone new come in is a daunting task when it's such a uh, such a, a character that's so closely identified with Bendis that you're the next person in line. Like that's a tremendous amount of pressure and. I just thought you did an amazing job and it really felt like the character and even the artist, uh, was it Mattia? Yeah, Mattia. Did an amazing job at really kind of nailing like the visual takes, everything about it just felt, it was an amazing read for, I'll just say that. Um, but what's taking over for Bendis and again, for someone who really his fingerprints are so all over this character, what process is that like to work in? Well, how, how do I take up this voice and make it true to that, but also tell new stories? I mean, it was tricky. It was tricky. I'm not going to lie. It was, I was super stressed. I was super nervous about it. Um, you know, the good news is I felt really, really capable in the sense that I know that character in and out, forwards, backwards, sideways, etc. So that gave me some confidence. And the fact that Brian handpicked me gave me confidence. Um, so those were all positive things, but I mean, I think you're right that the the needle to thread on that one is how do you respect this character and get it right and honor all the greatness that's come before while also not being derivative because you still have to carve your own path. You can't just go in there and ape Brian Michael Bendis, you know, mm-hmm. if only because I'm not. Brian Michael Bendis so if I ape him all you're going to get is a substandard Brian Michael Bendis like we had to find our own way to do it I do think a big part of that was Mattia because his art is so specific and so evocative especially the colors Mm. such like a sort of neo-noir it's like Manhattan but almost a tiny bit of like Blade Runner in there it's really fantastic and I think it's a really great new direction for Jessica. I mean, Michael Gatos is incredible. Um, and he's been that definitive look, but again, we had to really move away from that or else we're just aping something and trying to pretend we're this thing. And uh, you're not going to get very far that way. I thought Mattia was a really great blend that didn't feel like it was aping the show or the book. And it was somewhere in between those two things. And uh, it really uh, sold a lot of the work I had to do, I think, by by really owning the page that that it, the way it did. Now, has, has Brian reached out about like has he read it? Did he like it? I don't know if he's read it. Uh, he's pretty busy, so True. you know I try not <laughs> to give him a hard time. Uh, he's been very supportive online, uh, whether he's read it or not. Uh, he's reblogged it and tweeted about it and stuff he's been incredibly generous um and that's all you can ask for for sure oh as i said that this is this is his girl you know like he birthed this character and like i can only imagine what that must be like for him again because he's written her for so long in so many different places and developed her so much that to kind of walk away obviously because of other opportunities but to walk away from that character can't be easy yeah um and and what was that like for you when as you said like you were picked by him like 
what did that feel like or what was that conversation like was there a conversation like how did that even come about yeah it was he dm'd me and he was like hey can i call you and i was like what is happening i was like (laughs) okay yes definitely so he called me like five minutes later we had this amazing but you know sort of brief we weren't on the phone for i mean somewhere between five and ten minutes probably and he just sort of told me what was going to be happening and that he wanted me to take it over and he was like listen there's no list he's like you're it wow and you know, do you want to do it? And I was like, of course I want to do it. I was like, I'm terrified, but I want to do it, you know, and I think I can do it. He's like, I know you can. And it was just really great. It was really great. And so, you know, we got started pretty quick. Um, and, uh, I think because he ended up leaving Marvel, um, there ended up being probably less communication than there would have been if he hadn't. Um, But I think he would have probably tried to stay out of my way anyway because he would have known that we've got to find our own path, you know? Mm -hmm. But I can't even imagine how hard that is because, you know, as you said, like, you try to imagine that. Like, I have – I feel such ownership of, like, Rogue and Gambit and Kate Bishop and I didn't create any of them and nor have I written either of them for 20 years, you know? So – it, it must be very hard to let it go. So for sure. Well, as we wind up, is there anything else we've talked about your upcoming projects and other things that are coming up? Is there anything else you'd like to tease or that you can tease? I cannot. I have one thing that I think will be announced this month sometime. And then I have another thing that is probably a ways out. Maybe it'll happen at uh, NYCC. Um, so lots of cool stuff coming still. Very exciting, but nothing I can talk about. <laughs> okay, and, ob- and obviously people should buy West Coast Avengers, which as it comes out, it comes out very soon. Yes, it comes out very soon, and everyone should definitely buy it. I'm very excited about it, and I'm very nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for spending so much of your time with us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And maybe we'll have you on in the future to uh, talk about some of those exciting projects that you can't mention yet. That'd be great. Thanks. Thank you.